Welcome to the Vine Podcast. This is Warren, and today we are going to continue our conversations on confession with a couple of special guests. We've had several discussions around this topic on this podcast, and as we have talked and and thought, we we thought there would be value in bringing in some guests who have backgrounds in faith traditions that differ from the experiences of those who have been a part of these conversations on this podcast. And so with that in mind, this episode will feature a conversation that I had with the Vine's own Bridget Jarrett, as well as another conversation that I had with Rylan Scott, who is a pastor in Houston. And Bridget and Rylan each bring a unique perspective to this conversation from their church backgrounds and some of the experiences that they have had. And so I know that I certainly learned some things from these conversations, and, and there are things that I found very interesting, and, and I hope that you uh, will find them interesting and, and compelling as well. Uh, this episode looks at the ways in which different traditions practice and teach confession and includes several topics that are connected to those practices and teachings. And I think there's great value in hearing the perspectives of others as we come to understand others better and even grow in our own understanding of God, of Scripture, and of the Church. So I hope you enjoy this episode, and with no further ado, let's get to the conversations. Hello, Bridget. (laughs) Hi, Bridget. Hi, Warren. How are you today? I'm great. It's Friday evening. That's right. I have right. a weekend ahead of me, so that's A weekend good. ahead of you, and so uh, as if you don't have enough on your plate right now as an educator and teacher, you're taking time out of your, out of your Friday night to talk to us, so thank you for that. Yes, of course. I'm excited. Okay, so as you know, we've been we've been talking about confession, and mm-hmm. and so we wanted to get the perspective and insight and and just kind of thoughts of people who may have had different experiences with that growing up and in different church experiences and things like that. And so to begin with, I know a lot of people at the Vine kind of know at least some of your kind of story and and history with at least as far as kind of church and stuff goes. But can you just give us kind of a brief overview of your church background and kind of type of church you grew up in and things like that as we begin? Sure. Um, So I grew up Catholic and not just Catholic, Irish Catholic. So we were in pretty deep. Um, Both of my parents are one of 10 children Um, and the Catholic roots are pretty deep on both sides. I have an aunt who she passed away recently, but she um, was a nun her whole life. Oh, wow. I have two uncles who um, met their wives while becoming priests <laughs> and dropped out <laughs> from becoming priests. Um, and uh, the, looking back at our family tree, there's only one person we know of who wasn't Catholic, and that was my great-grandmother, Alda, who was a Christian scientist, um, which I think is why my mom is a little weird sometimes about stuff. <laughs> like, my mom believes in, like, mind over matter, and that, yeah, that comes from Alda. Um, but other than that, like... Everyone in my family is Catholic, and so very um, Catholic, huh? Very, yes, very Catholic. My grandmother, who lived with me most of my life, um, her name was Mary Genevieve, which is where we got Jenny's name, Genevieve Marie. Um, she was a very devout Catholic, and um, she wanted to be a nun, but she wanted to have children, and so mm. that wasn't, you know, you can't do both. Right. So she decided to be a mother instead. But she, I remember her telling me that she wanted so badly to be like saintly, you know? And so she would pray for the stigmata, which (laughs) if you're not Catholic, you might not know what the stigmata is, but it's like some saints supposedly have the, the wounds of Christ like in their hands and in their feet. And my grandmother would pray to receive that. And I remember Mm. always thinking that was really creepy. Um, but that's how devout she was. And, um, growing up, she never liked to sleep alone, so I always slept in her room with her. And I remember just pr- hearing her pray the rosary every night. And um, and so, funny story, though, the same grandmother, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for her being a de- very devout Catholic because she had five kids, like, very quickly. She was 17 when she first got—no, 15 when she got married, 17 when she had her first kid. 
she had five kids really quickly. (laughs) Yeah, five kids really quickly. And then she had no children for about 10 years. Um, There were a couple, I think, miscarriages in there. But for 10 years, she had no children. And um, she finally went to confession, went to the priest and confessed that she'd been preventing pregnancy with birth control. And he told her to go forth and sin no more. And so my mom's the youngest of the 10. (laughs) So I should be really glad. That my grandmother so that's went to how you came along. <laughs> that's how I'm here today. Because if confession didn't exist, my grandmother probably would have had no more children. She had five more after that. So. Interesting. Well, <laughs> yes. I, I want to get to your kind of experience with confession in, in the Catholic Church in a minute. But, but, but before we get kind of specifically there, I'm curious, um, like, are there other elements or aspect of kind of the Catholic Church and faith and experience that were especially formative for you or that you still kind of carry with you in your, in your faith now? Um, I think the part of Catholicism that I kind of miss the most and that I, I think was super formative in my life is just kind of this, how can I put it? The, the spirituality or the um, emphasis put on the sacraments, like the idea that these are sacred things, like it's not just, practicing something or, um, pretending, um, you know, all the sacraments are taken very seriously, right? Like Mm -hmm. baptism, um, confirmation, um, confession, um, and communion is the biggest one for me. I think, um, to me, like going to communion as a child and then as an, an adult always felt very, um, like holy and healing because <laughs> we were taught like you're, you're taking in the body and blood of Christ, which that kind of goes back to confession a little bit too. Like you have to go to confession before you can go to communion. Um, because you were, you're, it's, it's a sacred thing. It's not just a remembrance. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think, and that I also, <laughs> because I was raised with this idea that like the sacraments are so important. Um, it's why, my mom and I fought a lot about baptism because <laughs> she wanted me to baptize my children Catholic. And I was like, I take this too seriously to just baptize my kids Catholic and then not raise them Catholic. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I think so that there's, is there sort of in your mind kind of a sacredness to some of those yes. elements that, that maybe you, you don't feel as much outside of that tradition? Yes. Of? I think, I mean, cause I, I like liturgy. Like I like the, yeah the the knowing like when you go to a catholic church and you've been raised in it like you know um what everything means and where it comes from and you can go to any church in the whole country or in the in any any part of the world and you know what's going on and there's some comfort in that and um and communion itself i yeah like (laughs) going to communion at a church that's not catholic where you're just drinking juice and a wafer like it's, it, I try to bring that sacredness on my own, you know, like this is a, this can still be holy if I'm not having a priest bless it. Like I can, it can still be a holy situation. Um, but it's harder for me. So I miss, I miss communion. Yeah. That kind of Yeah. And I think, I think that's a good example of how, um, just different experiences shape us because I think mm-hmm. some people who didn't necessarily grow up in, in kind of a Catholic tradition would, would say kind of, well, w- what do you mean? The way that we do it is holy and it is sort of, you know, these things. But when you have something to compare it to, that kind of changes your perception of it and, um, and the yeah, wine tastes how better. You approach it. <laughs> well, our, <laughs> That's true though. Certainly better than our little um, prepackaged cups that we have now for sure. <laughs> Well, Cullen, um, Cullen and Jenny have both said they don't like the wafers. And I was like, this is what I was raised on. Oh, Banner <laughs> loves the- those things. He's asked <laughs> yeah. for us to buy a box for home. So. Cullen was like, is this styrofoam? Yeah. Like, That's what every every Catholic kid, when they have their first communion, is like, <laughs> <laughs> what is this? What am I eating? <laughs> well, so so confession has already come up a couple of times in things that you have said. And I... Um, and so I know that you had said, I think in a, in a previous conversation that we had had, that you went to your first confession at seven. Is that right? You were seven years so, old? So I was trying to remember, I was talking with my sister, because my sister and I went through our, our first communion at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, and she said, no, you weren't seven, you were eight. And I was like, okay. So yeah, I was eight. Eight. Okay. Uh-huh. Well, that works. Yes. <laughs> All right. So I'm wondering, so 
Do you have a memory of, of that first experience and like what that was like? Yes, I remember was being that, terrified. Was it intimidating? Yes, I was terrified. And I, I, I laughed so hard talking to my, my sister, Kelsey. Kelsey and I are just a year apart. And um, so I was telling her I was going to come on the podcast and talk about conf- a confession. And she was like, I remember thinking, like, I'm not even adult and an adult. Like, I have no control over my life. Why are they making me do this? <laughs> and I didn't think that at all. I just thought, oh, my gosh, I hope I remember all of the sins I've committed. <laughs> Like, I think that shows our Enneagram numbers pretty clearly. Like, I'm a six, hardcore, and she's an eight. And she was like, why are they making me do this? I have no control. And you're like, what if I forget something? <laughs> what if I forget? What if I haven't told all the sins? <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, you told me that. And I was trying to, to think of, like, Isley going to confession a year or two mm-hmm. ago and just the how how strange that would, would, would seem in, in my mind. Um and so yeah. what, what did that, um, looking back on that, did, did that sort of, um, like what concept of confession? Did it, did it scar me? Well, no, I'm not <laughs> trying not to ask it that way, but it had to like leave an imprint on you as far as, as confession and, and just a concept of confession, I would think. Well, I think I was always a really serious kid. And so I think I just took it really seriously and I was like, I have to do it right. You know, so I had to memorize the, the prayer you know, you do go in and say, bless me, Father, for I have sinned. It has been my whole life since I've been to confession. <laughs> and mm-hmm. you do all of those things. And I was very nervous about, um, you know, forgetting forgetting everything. Luckily, the priest that I went to confession with was very um, kind. And, you know, luckily, the priest that I went to, I think he knew I'm dealing with like eight-year-olds. And so he wasn't like strict about it. My priest growing up after that point, um, who was my priest for most of my life, he um, he was really laid back. Like he was, he was the uh, the parish priest at UT for a long time, like at the university, and um, he just would like be like, "Hey, Bridget, come on in." You know, we wouldn't have to like sit with the divider unless I wanted to, because um, it can't. You know, it can't. It, it's meant to be mm-hmm. anonymous if you want to be anonymous, but you just feel like, what's going on and what have you done? And, you know, (laughs) so like, as I got to be a teenager, it was a little easier, I think. Yeah. But yeah. (laughs) So, so can you just kind of walk us through for those who are maybe sort of really unfamiliar or have sort of a kind of a, an image that may be formed mostly by like movies or TV shows or something like that? What all does go into like how, how often would you would you do that? Is it sort of as you see in the movies where you're just kind of saying this stuff to somebody and can you just well, walk, walk us through kind of some of the mechanics? I've never actually been to it. No, I take that back. I've been to one church that had the actual boxes that you walk into and do confession. Right. And I'll tell that story in a minute, but because <laughs> I did confession there. Um, but, you know, it's not actually called the sacrament of confession. It's called the sacrament of penance and reconciliation because you're you know, doing penance for what you've done wrong and reconciling yourself with God. And Hmm. um, so, yeah, you go in, you're supposed to say how long, you know, bless me, Father, for I have sinned. This is how long it's been since my last confession. Um, There's no, like growing up in my church, there wasn't like no requirement of how often you had to go to confession. But my mother and my mom's family was very adamant, like you do not go to communion without confession first. Um, In fact, I think they're, you know, I never really understood that whole like Catholic guilt thing, but I get it now that I'm outside of it because I'm like, oh yeah, like I have uh, a very dear person in my life who I'm related to who um, for years did not go to communion because she, even though she went to confession, she did not feel like it cleansed her enough of her sins. She felt Mm. like she was kind of perpetually sinning and so she just didn't go to communion for for years. And finally, a priest convinced her, like, you know, you need food for your body, and this is food for your soul. And, you you know, you're sorry, obviously. Go to communion. <laughs> so, so, yeah, my mom's family was taught you don't go to communion without going to confession. So they went often. Um, and you know, thinking so like about what's, what's often like once a week. Yeah. Like if they went to church, they went to confession. Yeah. Um, yeah. and there, most prayer parishes have like a time during the middle of the week where you can go to 
<laughs> where you can go to confession. Like ours was on Wednesdays. You could go to confession. The priest would be there from like 5.30 to 7.30 at night, just hanging out in the little rectory. <laughs> and you could like show up and go to confession. And then I like cross your fingers. You didn't sin from Wednesday to Sunday, I guess. <laughs> but you get all your sinning out of the way yeah. early in the week, right? Yeah. But then I was thinking about it. And I was thinking, well, actually, like, you know how we do our prayer of confession in our in our service. There's several mm-hmm. times in the Catholic service where you kind of do the same thing. Like I had to go back and remember. Mm-hmm. It's been a long time since I've been to mass, and they've changed. Like what I grew up with, like the liturgy I grew up with is no longer the same as it was when I was a kid. They've changed it. And I, I actually, I, I went to mass with my mom not that long ago. And I was like, none of the words are the same. I don't like it. Um, <laughs> but like there's a time in mass where I don't know if they say it this way anymore, but it used to be, Lord, I'm not worthy to receive you, but only say the word and I shall be healed. So that's before communion. So I think that's asking for a form of confession yes um and then there's another prayer that we would all say during mass before communion and it would say i confess to all my no yes i confess to almighty god and to you my brothers and sisters that i have greatly sinned in my thoughts and in my words and what i have done and in what i have failed to do through my fault through my fault through my most grievous fault Therefore, I ask Mary, ever virgin, all the angels and saints, and you, my brothers and sisters, to pray to me for the, to pray to me to the Lord our God. And that was every mass. So, like, mm. that's two. Yeah. <laughs> and then I also grew up as a as an altar server, and the main job of an altar server in church is to be the the person who helps the priest with communion, like preparing communion. I don't know if you've ever been to a Catholic mass, but the you know, we're the little kids that fall asleep until the communion starts. And um, my biggest memory of being an altar server is one of our jobs is to bring, you know, the, the Eucharist over to the table and then bring this bowl to the table for the priest to put his hands over. And I did it every Sunday. He'd put his hands over it and I'd pour water over his hands and he would say, Lord, wash away all of my iniquities and cleanse me from my sins. And so once again, now that's the priest before preparing communion, asking for forgiveness. So it was just so ingrained and I didn't even realize it until like having to sit down and reflect. Like, yeah, I think that's why it's important to me because it's been such a part of my growing up life that I didn't even, I was like subconsciously (laughs) hearing it every week, you know? I think obviously, um, I mean, it sounds like those, those concepts of confession and what did you say? Penance and and reconciliation. Yes. Penance and reconciliation. Not penance. (laughs) I added an extra syllable in there. Penance Penance. and reconciliation. Those, those sound deeply embedded to so much of sort of life and worship Mm -hmm. in the Catholic church. Um, and so I'm wondering, you, you now kind of exist. Well, when, um, when did you, I don't know, how do you, how do you think of, of your kind of faith journey? When did you kind of stop regularly attending Catholic mass or I don't know if you say leave the Catholic church or however you think about that, but like how old were you when you kind of made that I think shift? I kind of got kicked out. <laughs> you got kicked out. Okay. I don't know. I, I don't know. Well, so as a teenager, I was pretty devout and I went to church all the time. And I was like, I said, an altar server till I graduated from high school. And then I, um, went to college and I'm still going to mass, but then I met a guy named John Jarrett who I knew already. (laughs) I knew him in high school, but then we started dating and he would go to mass with me. Um, and then I would go to Quaker church of Christ with him in Lubbock. And, um, I was like, wow, there's no, like, there's no in between. Like, (laughs) this is very different. It's very Very different different for him. You know, I spent a lot of time explaining to him the rituals and all the things. And, and then he spent a lot of time trying to keep me awake. (laughs) The Quaker Church of Christ. (laughs) Um, And, you know, it, it was just, yeah, I was like, okay, so I want to marry him. And I remember we got, we got engaged. We wanted to get married at my Catholic church that I grew up in because it's, gorgeous it's it's if anyone's ever been to horseshoe bay texas 
It is the church on the hill that overlooks the lake, and the whole wall, back wall is glass. And uh, my childhood priest was no longer there. He'd already moved on, you know, because priests move, go to different places. Mm-hmm. Um, and the priest that was there at the time when we were engaged was an old school Irish priest. He was from Ireland, came to America, and he was like, oh, wow. he he interviewed us and said, why are y'all marrying y'all are different religions? And I was so angry. I was like, we are not Ugh. different religions. We're different denominations. Um, you know, <laughs> and so he pretty much refused to marry us um, unless John went through the process of going to classes to become like pretty much Catholic or and John wasn't going to do that. He loved me, but he, he wasn't going to do that. <laughs> <laughs> and so I um, then was like, okay. And well, and I was mad because I was like, that's ridiculous. I knew people who weren't Catholic who'd gotten married at our church because it was beautiful mm-hmm. and people would pay big money to go to, yeah, you know, yeah. and I grew up growing up in that church. And so it bothered me. So we ended up going, we got married at the Methodist church in our hometown by a Church of Christ preacher. And it, w- it worked out. There you yeah. go. But that's when I kind of stopped going to the Catholic church and when we got married. And and I think people know it yeah. took us about seven years to find the vine. <laughs> the only yeah, so church. You, so you ended up at the yes. vine. And, uh, and, and obviously, I think in, in obviously any Protestant church or tradition, you're going to have a very different um, experience and teaching mm-hmm. and practice around confession and, and things like that. So I'm, I'm curious as to now that you've kind of spent several years now in outside of kind of that, the, the mm-hmm. Catholic tradition and now kind of part of a non-denominational uh, restoration kind of movement root, rooted church. Um, what, I don't really know how to ask this, but just what observations do you know, do you notice about kind of the ways that confession is, is viewed, is practiced, is talked about um, kind of within those different traditions? Obviously, there are differences, yeah. but I'm wondering just kind of how you experience those and, and what reflections you might have on that. Well, I would say going from being Catholic to then going to like a more non-denominational or, um, you know, Church of Christ tradition, um, I don't feel like, you know, like traditional Church of Christ, where we, we were going when John and I were dating, they don't really talk about confession at all. It's not mentioned, mm-hmm. you know. Um, yeah. I think that's part of what pulled me to the vine is when we were there for the first time, they did this prayer of confession. I was like, oh, my goodness, this is not. So something felt <laughs> a little at least Yes, it, it kind of, <laughs> it mel- and they did com- communion every week. Um, it wasn't just once a month or whatever. And so it felt a little more like home, a little more um, mm-hmm. normal to me. And so I would say that's my first observation is that, you know, the church of churches of Christ that John grew up in, there's not really a mention of confession. Um, felt pretty, yeah, non-existent yeah. probably. And that's what Jason and I had said in, in a previous conversation about it, is that in, in our church experiences growing up, that's probably how it was. And, and you kind of had this invitation at the end of the sermon, but it wasn't always really tied to confession. It was I thought usually more tied to, to baptism. baptism. Yeah, or, like I never really took that as come and confess your sins. It's more like come and get saved right now. <laughs> yeah, I think that that would probably depend a lot on the, the individual church yeah. that you were at and the preacher and how the preacher worded things mm-hmm. and, and who tended to go forward in those churches and things like that. So it it was the place in, in a lot of those churches and still is in a lot of those churches. It It is the place where confession happens. But even in that, it it's not necessarily geared towards that. And, and that's that's not that's not always the point of it. It yeah. seems. But yeah, yeah. Well, and I think um, in, like, when it comes to, well, I don't know. Did you ask about misconceptions? Did you ask that at some point? <laughs> about Well, that, that was a, um, yeah, that was in the email, but I hadn't gotten oh, okay. to it yet. But, but yeah, so let's, let's do that. Jason, again, because cut I that do out. think <laughs> <laughs> there are, uh, like, I'm sure there have to be some some misconceptions or, or kind of stereotypes that take hold about the practice of confession within Catholic Church. So what do you notice about that now? Like, do you feel like there are misconceptions that people have about oh, it? Oh, yeah. I mean, even when I was Catholic, I thought there were misconceptions that, you know, people had. Um, 
I think that sometimes people think that Catholics use it as like a get out of jail free card. Like you can Mm -hmm. sin all week and then go to confession and be fine or that we teach that, like that that's normal. Um, I remember seeing some movie, and I don't remember what it was called, but with Joseph Gordon-Levitt where he like goes to confession every Sunday and then like goes off and sins. And I've never experienced that with a Catholic. Like I don't, I don't know anyone in my family who's ever been like that. Um, I mean, I know people in my family who've sinned, but I don't think, I don't think they bothered to go to confession (laughs) about it. So like, I, I, I just, I haven't experienced that. Um, I also think that my, the person in my family who I'm very close to, who struggles with not feeling like her sins are forgiven and didn't go to communion for a long time. I remember telling her like after going to the vine for a couple of years, like Jesus paid all that. <laughs> like you need to not worry so much and forgive yourself and move on. Cause Jesus already paid all that. And I, I think that's the trouble that a lot of other churches have with the idea of, of confession with Catholicism is that like, why do you have to confess mm-hmm. like that and ma- do penance when Jesus paid for your sins already? Right. Yeah. But yes, I do think that, yes, that is the, the difference. There. Yeah. yeah. But I, I think there's also something to the Catholic view of it because I, Catholic doctrine doesn't support the idea of like, go and sin and do all your things and then go to confession. Like, that's not the idea. I mean, it's called the the sacrament of penance and reconciliation. I think of it, and I think this is, this is what I was taught too, is that it's not necessarily that you can just like go and sin and then go to for confession and be forgiven. You, just like any relationship, if you do something wrong, it's going to hurt that relationship, right? Like, Mm-hmm. You you have to do something to make that better. And I think that also goes into like mortal sins versus venial sins, which we could talk about that another day. But but like if you know... I'll be another podcast. Yeah. <laughs> if you know you've done wrong, you have to do something to make it better. And mm-hmm. so penance and reconciliation means doing something to ask for forgiveness and to, to show that you are truly sorry and then be reconciled with God. Because I was taught Mm -hmm. that if you sin, you're hurting God, right? Like you are, you're turning away from him and that hurts him more than anything. When you make a conscious choice to turn away from what he wants for your life and instead do something that's going to hurt you and him. And so it's a way to repair that relationship, to focus yourself back on God, to turn your heart back mm-hmm. to him and say, I truly am sorry. I want to do better. I know I'm not perfect. I know you forgive me, but, but yeah. I, I want, I, I want this. I want to do better. I don't, I don't want to continue saying. And so I hear you saying that you, you feel like you can do that while still recognizing that, that your forgiveness is already fully assured in Christ. Yes. Um, that it's, it's not like that's in question until you go to confession. Yeah. Um, I, yeah. And I think, I think Christians need more of that. Like more of recognizing you're forgiven, God's on the throne, but we're not perfect. We're human and we're going to do things that are wrong. And if we call ourselves Christian, we have to own up to the times when we are not being Christian. We're not being Christian like. (laughs) Sure. Yeah. Well, and I think that's one of the, uh, I think it's one of the many benefits of, of hearing from people with other backgrounds and experiences, even if we don't come away um, sharing all the same beliefs or adopting Mm -hmm. all the same practices. But I think it helps us to see that um, yeah, that there may be things that, I mean, to assume that, that I or, or we have everything figured out is, is incredibly spiritually arrogant, no matter the group that you're yes. in, but right. Just to, just to assume that like, well, this is, this is the a hundred percent right way to do it is, is just, uh, seems incredibly arrogant. And, and so, yeah, I do think there are things that we can, can learn from, from others and from people who have a different pers- perspective or, or way of seeing things. And, mm-hmm. and, um, even if, 
like I said, that doesn't lead to uniformity in practice or theology or thought. That there's there's still benefit to that, and and I think it's also beneficial. Even like I I didn't really even know that that term of of penance and and reconciliation and until you were uh, sharing that. And and reconciliation is certainly a term that that I think Protestant groups are more familiar with now. And, yeah. And and you hear more mm-hmm. in in other traditions, and and I think you're right that, or at least that was my experience of of kind of misconceptions about Catholic confession. Mm-hmm. That's what I remember, even as like a teenager, hearing and 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 like not ever. I don't know, like like you say, I don't know how those misconceptions grow or are spread. But I remember that as I was thinking about that question. I remember kind of having that thought that like there was this idea kind of a, amongst Protestant thought that like that was kind of the the ethos of of Catholic confession that you could just go do whatever you wanted as long as you went to confession. I, I blame mobster movies, like all the movies where the mobsters <laughs> are like Italian Catholic and they just go to confession on Sundays and then keep killing people. Like yeah. I don't know any Catholics that do that, so. And so I think it's helpful to to hear that like no matter what you think of the practice it's it's helpful to hear that like there's obviously a seriousness with which it is taken yes. and and it's it's not seen um you know in, anyone can abuse any type of system or circumstance or situation right or or use it poorly or uh, abuse god's but, grace but, right like <laughs> or abuse god's grace grace right yeah that happens across yeah. the board uh but to hear that that by and large it's it's an experience that that is taken very solemnly and and seriously and um that there's weight to it um i think is good again even if regardless of what you end up kind of adopting in your own mm-hmm. life it's it's helpful and i think helps us to just understand each other better. Yeah. So that's good. I don't, for me now, the, the, the image that I have of, of confession, when I think of it is like, I think it's the first scene of the movie, The Ringer. Have you seen The Ringer with Johnny Knoxville? No, probably because it has Johnny Knoxville in it. <laughs> no, <let's see. laughs> well, he goes in and confesses for rigging the Special Olympics. And that's the, <laughs> well, no, that's the opening scene I haven't scene in the seen movie. that, no. No, but oh, I was going to tell uh, the story, so... Yeah. Like, there's only one time I've been to confession in an actual, like, thing that you go in the box and you can't see the priest and everything. And that was when I was in high school and we went to Notre Dame University, like, as part of a vocational program through our church. It was meant to be for teenagers. You learn your vocation. We did Bible studies. We ran all over campus. We went to the stadium and saw Touchdown Jesus and all of it. It was awesome. It was like every Catholic kid's dream. And we were going to have mass at the Basilica. No, I'm sorry, at the Grotto, which as a Catholic kid, I just cried like through the whole mass. But um, we had to go to confession first at the Basilica. And I remember there were like, I don't know, a thousand kids probably all in line to go to confession. And it was one of the most um, serious and spiritual moments of my life to that point. Like I'm going to confession. Mm -hmm. I didn't know the priest. So it was one of my, it was the only time I'd ever been to confession and not known the priest. Um, And it was a time when I was pretty angry. I was a pretty angry kid. My parents were having a rough time. They were pretty much on the verge of divorce. And I confessed to this priest, like, I think I hate my parents. (laughs) And he was like, tell me a little more. So I confessed a little more and told, told a little bit of what was going on. And, and he said, like, having hate in your heart is not okay. God doesn't want that. And he also said, your parents should also confess their sins. And that made me feel good as a teenager. <laughs> so I was like, yes, he gets it. But so it was one of the only times where I kind of felt the Holy Spirit. And I, I walked from the Basilica to the Grotto. And it, it was like a weight had been lifted off of me. For the mm. fir- It was one of the first times where confession truly was like a healing experience for me. Um, mm. And it was with someone yeah. I didn't know. And I kind of listened to some of the podcasts y'all have had. And there's been kind of a theme of, of confessing to someone you know. And yeah. I think that is important, but it's not always the most necessary thing if you believe that you are confessing to God. You know, like you're confessing straight to God. So, yeah. And it seems like that would be a lot easier to, to find meaning in if you're practiced and experienced in it. Mm hmm. Like, I think for anyone to do that for the first time, whether you're seven or 37, would seem odd and weird, I think. Sure. <laughs> but but the more experienced you are in it, 
yeah, I could see how you would find find meaning and value. Well, in it. and if you if you believe that any priest can be an intermediary between yeah. you and yeah. God, you know, then that holds some weight for a fifteen year old girl, you know, that I'm talking to God. God heard it. But Yeah. Well, um, I, I told you we wouldn't keep you too long, yeah. so so I, I, w- I want to close out with one more question in just a minute. But I do I do appreciate your your time and perspective, and I know for me, um, I know y- you have helped me kind of appreciate things like uh, liturgical prayer more and and things like that. And and uh, as I said in, in another one of the podcasts, the the prayer of confession is something I I personally didn't see a ton of value in at first, just because I had never really done anything like that um, on a in in kind of a part of worship. But I was like, all right, yeah, we can add it back in. But I remember um, being kind of nervous to ask you because I was like, it was so important to me. But I was like, he might not like it, and he's brand new. He's gonna be like, oh my gosh, who is this chick? Why is she asking me to do this? <laughs> um, yeah, but but and as I've said in the podcast and in other places, it it is I, I find it to be very meaningful now, and okay. and I pray it throughout the week, um, not just on Sundays, and and so I think there's value in it, and and Levit- even studying through Leviticus has really helped me, I think, appreciate the um, the benefit and impact of ritual in deeper ways that that I'm. I'm trying to begin to incorporate into my just kind of own personal life now. And so that's kind of where I wanted to, to end with, with you is uh, I'm wondering, so obviously as far as corporate kind of church and worship goes, confession obviously looks very different for you now than, than it did in the Catholic church. But I'm wondering what, the, what that looks like in your own kind of personal life now. What is the role of confession in, in your own life and as you kind of see it personally? I would say I'm not as good at confession now, <laughs> now that I'm not practiced in it anymore. Like you said, like if you practice it, you're going to be better yeah. at it. Um, it's been a I wonder, like, do you, do you have ways in which you incorporate it into either like your prayer life or relationships or anything like that? Um, so I do the prayer that we use. Um, I, I do have, and I, I will say it more than just during our worship service. Um, and I do mm-hmm. have a, a prayer card that um, I took a picture of just in case you asked. I don't know if people who aren't Catholic know, but like a lot of Catholics carry like prayer cards so you can right, yeah. remember the prayer without, um, you know, oh, I don't know if my phone's going to let me look at it, um, without having to memorize every prayer. Um, but this is one like my mom gave me a long time ago whenever we were, you know, when I was younger and learning prayers and everything, and it's got white Jesus on the front, very white Jesus, <laughs> but it's a prayer of confession and I keep it in my wallet. Um, it says, Oh Lord, we have not longed for your coming and your kingdom as we ought instead clinging to the things of this world and continu- and counting them dear. We have grown callous to the needs of the poor and downtrodden, the lonely and the suffering. We have not cried out for justice as we should, nor have we cared about those who are without Christ and without hope in this world. We have been silent when we should have spoken, though you have warned us in saying, if anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory. Lord, forgive us for our offenses and grant that by the power of your Spirit, we might live in the light of your coming again. We ask this through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. So there's just parts of that that are really important to me. Um, Growing callous to the needs of the poor. I think we're really good at that in America, (laughs) as American Christianity. Um, The downtrodden, the lonely, and the suffering. We we, We have not cried out for justice as we should. Yeah. Well, that's a that's a good a good prayer for us to end on, probably. So, thank you, thank you for your time, for your perspective, for your thank insight, you. and for for all that uh, that you and your family uh, add to to the life of the vine and the ways in which you you bless our our church family. So, thank we're you. we're grateful for you you spending this time with us and giving up part of your your Friday night to do this for us. No worries, anytime.
Okay, I'm joined now by Ryland Scott. Hello, Ryland. Welcome to the Vine Podcast. Hey, man. What's going on? I'm glad to be here. Thank you. Good, good. Uh, so, Ryland, let me see if I get this all right. You are, I believe, the pastor of students at the Houston Northwest Church. Is that right? That is correct. Yep. All right. Yep, good I deal. Am. How long? How long have you been at that church? Man, I've been there for four years now. Doesn't seem like it. Seems like it's been twenty, but just four. <laughs> <laughs> Ministry has a way of working that way, right? And it does. It does. It does. Some ways it seems long, and in some ways it seems like you just started yesterday or something like that. At, at times, yeah, at least, it seems like that for me. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so okay, so I know a lot of our people here. Uh, you know, probably have no frame of reference for the Houston Northwest Church. Of course, Rachel works with us now, and so she's kind of been able to, to share some about her church experience there with some of us, but a lot of people probably still don't have a lot, a lot of frame of reference for that church. So uh, I'm curious just to kind of start with, what could you tell us briefly just about that church, just to give, give us a bit of a picture of, of kind of where you are now? Sure, absolutely. Um, Houston Northwest is, um, first off, let me start by saying it's a really cool church. Um, she's about 50 years old. And um, she was planted uh, from a bus ministry. That's actually how the church grew. Um, they bought about 13 school buses and they went out to the community with the old yellow school buses, picked up kids and brought the kids to the church. And those kids really bought the families, brought their parents. And so it's a Southern Baptist church, um, sits in the Northwest suburbs of Houston. If you're familiar with the Tomball Klein area, um, hence the name Houston Northwest. Um, the church probably, I would say, is around the church of 1500, something of that nature. And um, interestingly enough, I am the first uh, Black pastor that the church has ever hired in its 50 years of existence. And so it's really cool. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's, it's a really cool thing. The church um, is really centered around missions, uh, discipleship, and small group ministries. And so um, I've really enjoyed the context in which they minister in. I enjoy the programming. And I really like um, our senior pastor, Dr. Steve Besner. He is just a really cool guy, really down to earth. And it's really just been great in my life and my family's life. And so that's, that's kind of the context of the church. So what was that like being the first black pastor hired at a, at a church, especially a church of that size? Yeah, man. Um, it probably would be easier to say, what was it not like? <laughs> um, yeah, it was, it was really, it, it, it's been a journey. It's been a journey. Just about everything that you could possibly think of um, probably happened. Um, but I will tell you this, that uh, God was faithful and is still faithful through the process. And I have definitely seen him move in my life and in the lives of those that I work along with. And just in the life of the congregation as a whole, um, me being there, my presence being there, really brings a different uh, nuance to what ministry is and what it looks like. And so me being there, um, I think, has really given our church an opportunity to experience and see and know that um, God actually believes in Technicolor, just like this wall behind me. Uh, so, so that's a really cool thing. That's great. That's great. Yeah, and I think that's been, um, it's been something we've been trying to be more intentional about, even in this kind of pandemic time when we've been kind of doing more podcast things and have the opportunity to, you know, bring in different perspectives and voices is, is trying to be intentional about, as you said, listening to the voices of others, the perspectives of others around various topics, um, including this one now that we're kind of touching on with confession, but, but we've done some other stuff around um, you know, race in the church and different things like that, because, yeah, I do think it's important for us to, to be paying attention to those things as well within the church. Absolutely. Uh, so what about your, your kind of background? Can you tell us a little bit about how you grew up, type of church setting you grew up in, and, and just some of that? Yeah, man, I am actually a native Houstonian. Uh, believe it or not, that's kind of hard to find now in Houston because the world has now moved to Houston. Houston is probably, I think it's now the most diverse city in the United States. I know for sure it's in Texas. Um, mm -hmm. And if it's not the most, it's topped, you know, two or three. Right. Um, but anyway, so I grew up in Houston in the inner city, north side of Houston, in a community known as Acres Homes. And grew up there. And uh, my mom was a school teacher. Dad was, a, a, at the time, he was a mailman. And he eventually became a postmaster. Um, parents divorced when I was 12 years old and of course ended up staying with my mom. Um, and the church context that I grew up in was the charismatic or the Pentecostal church. It was um, 
a black church. It was 100% black. Um, and so that was the environment and the church context in which I grew up in. Yeah. Okay, cool. So what about, what, what's the racial kind of diversity makeup of your church now? The church I'm at now, the church that I grew up in. Church now, yeah. Oh, the church I'm at now, yeah, absolutely. The church I'm at now, I would say is probably, um, I would say 80 to 85% white and 15 to 20%, just a combination of black, Hispanic, Asian, uh, yeah. that, that thing, yeah. So that's, uh, so that's obviously probably a very different just environment from what you, what you grew up in. And, from, and so what'd you say, charismatic Pentecostal? Yeah, absolutely. So, so to go from yeah. a predominantly black charismatic Pentecostal church to a mostly white Southern Baptist church, there's probably a lot of stories you could share there about oh, differences. Man. Oh man, sure. I, I, we only have a few minutes, but uh, <laughs> I can have you here until the sun comes up on, on so many of the nuances. But I'll tell you the cool thing uh, that most people might not realize or understand is that the conservative beliefs are ideally the same. Uh, they are very much the same. Uh, the conservative concepts and ideologies that they have about family and yeah. community, uh, believe it or not, are um, at the heart of the church. They are the same. Uh, and I know that a lot of times people that have never existed in either one of those contexts will look at the other and say, there's no way that they are. There's no way that they think this way. Right. But since I've been on both sides of the tracks, I can tell you it's, it's at the heart of both, man. God is at the heart of both. So, yeah. Yeah, that's good. So, yeah, there's, there's a lot of similarities that just kind of look different in practice. It's there you go. Of, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. good. Uh, so, so as, we've, as we've said, so this confession is kind of at the heart of this sort of series of episodes that we've been doing. And, and we wanted to look at some differences in ways that people of different sort of faith backgrounds have sort of experienced that. And so a uh, previous conversation we had with somebody was uh, someone from our church who's from a Catholic background. And of course, I think we would know just some obvious differences that would exist there. And then as we got to thinking about it, we thought, man, there may be some space to explore culturally what that may look like uh, amongst um, different racial groups, uh, things like that. And, and that we were really curious uh, that we didn't know. And so we thought, well, maybe that'd be something to explore then. So, uh, so I'm curious if you just kind of, if you could talk a little bit about around that one specific um, kind of area of confession. Uh, what, what was the role of confession or the practice of confession within the church that, that you grew up with, with that Pentecostal predominantly black church? Man, that's a great question. Um, the role that confession played in the church that I grew up in was uh, one of really just the Bible really calls out was just repentance. And it would take place um, after the sermon. Uh, there would be an altar call, which is very similar to what happens where I'm at now. Um, uh, we call it a response time now. But mm -hmm. uh, as a kid, it was called altar call. And um, that altar call was given out by uh, either the, the pastor who preached or the one to follow up behind the pastor. And that was an opportunity that was given for those who had sinned or had um, found themselves uh, backslidden or just kind of fallen off the wagon in whatever area in their life to confess that they really want to get themselves back in line with Jesus Christ. And uh, they were allowed to come to the altar and that confession took place there and they were prayed over. And as they were prayed over um, at that point, uh, the, the very unique difference now comes into play here is that once the confession is made, there is a feeling of freedom. There's a feeling of release. And so oftentimes in that context, there will be weeping. There'll be weeping. There'll be um, crying. There might even be shouting. And it's not um, weep, uh, tears of sorrow. It is tears of joy. It is the, the joy and the euphoric feeling of being released from the heavy burden and the weight of the sin that you've been carrying around and mm -hmm. allowing yourself to just lay that on the altar of Christ and be able to literally walk away free from those things. So that's really kind of how that role of confession took place. Yeah, that's cool. And I think, it, you know, in, in some ways, again, as you said, there are some similarities between a lot of these kind of backgrounds and so uh, Jason, who's one of our elders, and I have talked about, because we both grew up in a Church of Christ tradition, 
which is our church mm-hmm. has some Church of Christ roots. And, and we would have called that the invitation at the end of the sermon where, where you, you, you offer the invitation. But, but it was our experience in a lot of churches that, that we had kind of grow, grown up in and spent time in that that was usually a time when uh, rarely would people come forward. And, and if so, it was kind of the same people um, and, and just kind of things like that. And so I think in a lot of our contexts, it's sort of lost its, its sort of purpose or, or I guess depth, it, it seemed like to some extent. Um, and so what was that experience like for, for you? Like, was it common for people to take advantage of that? And it sounds like it was a very meaningful and emotional experience when it did happen. Uh, was it, was mm-hmm. it common for that to happen? Was there sort of an expectation that you would do that at some point or just kind of, can you talk about some of those aspects of it? Yeah, it actually was pretty common. Um, that's one thing I would say is a big difference from the environment that I was raised in in the context in which I pastor now is that um, there was a very close connection with your relationship with Christ and your emotions. Mm -hmm. And so um, the truth is this, is I don't think anybody attends church on a Sunday, goes throughout the week, comes back the next Sunday, and did not have a sinful thought or did not commit a sin, even if it's something as simple as running a stop sign. Um, (laughs) I think that everybody did that. And so in the church that I grew up in, the expectation was for us to repatriate our hearts or or get back to that North Star, get back to Christ. And so it was not uncommon for the altar to be filled with people, people that we know that have been walking with Christ, but they just want to say, you know, this was a rough week for me. And I pondered some things that I should not have. And I confess that. And Lord, I want you to free me of uh, the burdens or free me of whatever it is that's causing me to think that way. So that next week, this new week, I can have a week that honors and glorifies you. And so, yes, it was filled. Yes, it was people that were deacons in the church. It was people that were missionaries that were coming to the altar. And so I would say that would be the unique difference because in the context I'm in now, um, uh, if, if you are walking with Christ or it's known that you're walking with Christ, you don't, you don't expose yourself like that. You don't put yourself out there like that. And so it was an environment of a judge free. And so you had the freedom to be able to come up and do that and the freedom to be able to express yourself. Yeah, yeah that's, that's kind of what I was thinking as you were sharing that was that it seems like that would help build an environment of, of vulnerability and authenticity amongst yes. people. Did, so did, Absolutely. do you think, was that more evident? Do you think kind of in, in that church than where you are now? Um, I would say, I would have to say, yeah, I would say definitely yes. Um, a, a level of vulnerability, I believe, is absolutely required for us to even have a relationship with Christ. Um, and of course, uh, we are to be vulnerable with him. But oftentimes, in order for us to build up our brother and our sister, uh, to have a certain amount of vulnerability in front of them, I also believe it is necessary. Uh, because what that does is that helps us to understand how we can be there for you or yeah. what the struggle is so that we can pray with you or pray for you, pray over you. Uh, whatever that looks like. And, and I tell you what, man, if we would just be a bit more vulnerable with each other, um, which is kind of like the antithesis of the culture within which we exist. Right. <laughs> but if we could actually kind of be what the Bible calls us to be, man, that'd be really cool. And I'm not, I'm not saying that the church I grew up in had it right, had it down perfect. No. Yeah. Yeah. I get you. But, and, and I think that's, that's kind of been a, a conversation that's come up over the course of our conversations with this is this sort of tension that I think, exists somewhat between this recognition that like in Christ, we are forgiven, that we have forgiveness, that that's already been done. Um, and this idea that there still seems to be some role for, for repentance. And, and, and so what does that look like? Um, and, and I like the way that you framed it kind of around repentance and, and vulnerability and, and how those things um, and the idea of kind of um, I think you said, you know, it, it, it helps to kind of go into the, the new week and, and kind of want to, to do better going forward. And, and that way of framing it, um, I think is helpful and, and it was good. Uh, you made a comment there in, the, in one of those answers about, uh, let me see if I get this right, because I tried to write it down as you were saying it, that there being a close connection between your emotions and your relationship with Christ. Is that, did I get that right? Yeah, um, yeah. Can you, can you talk some more about that? Because that's another thing that we've kind of been talking some about here that, that I do think um, we've missed. 
do you see a, a, a breakdown there along kind of racial lines? I don't want to be stereotypical, but, but it seems like that <laughs> happens sometimes. Would you agree with yeah. that? Yeah. Um, I tell you what, um, when I first got to the church that I'm at, I was really interested in the fact that there was so much passion wrapped around things such as sports or secular <laughs> music artists or dare not say the P word politics. I mean, just full blown, full on emotions. And it's really interesting because emotions are our gift from God to allow mm -hmm. us to experience him. And it's really interesting how I see sometimes people keep their emotions that are given to them by God and they will experience those emotions in secular things and events and contexts, mm -hmm. but won't experience those emotions in the room where you gather to worship our savior. Um, that's just something that that is just so, you know, just unreal to me. It's just, it's unique. And I'm not saying that that's an indictment. What I am saying is that, you know, culturally, there are some things that have been taught to us. Mm -hmm. And sometimes because it's tradition doesn't mean that we need to continue to do some things. Some traditions are really awesome to be broken. <laughs> <You know? laughs> that's good. I mean, you're stepping on toes now because it's, it's easier for me to outwardly display emotion watching a basketball game than it is to be doing it in a worship service. But <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so I, I, I understand what you're saying on that. And, and I do think, you know, I, I remember words growing up like reverence in worship, right? That that's, mm -hmm. that's the, the worship is connected to sort of this reverence and an order and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, that was almost, it wasn't communicated that way, but it was almost like, intentionally leaving emotion out of it um, yeah. so that we can kind of do these things. And, and there's something to be said for, for, for being intentional about what we do in those spaces. But, mm -hmm. but certainly that's something, that's a conversation. That's what I started to say earlier that we've been trying to come back to as well about involving all of ourselves, our emotions, our um, everything that we have, bringing all of that to worship and, and to God. And, and so I think this, this conversation certainly fits into that. So um, interesting to sort of sort of hear you bring that out and, and think about that as it relates to confession. Um, so what about you, you personally kind of now in your own life, um, kind of taking your, the background you grew up in and, and kind of, kind of where you are now, what is, what does confession look like for you just kind of personally in your own life? Um, and as you go about your own discipleship. Man, I'm going to be honest with you. Um, uh, it, it sounds really weird, but what it does for me or the role that it plays in my life is really sort of a hybrid. Um, I, I do understand the, the reverence uh, mm -hmm. for the majesty of God that you spoke to. Right. I understand it. Um, and at the same time, um, I do emotionally interact with Christ as well, um, because I want to let him know that I can in a healthy way, function through my emotions and allow him to see that I can use what he's given me, but also at the same time, revering him for the work that he has done. So if I could go back to what we we're talking about, I don't think that, I think that too much emotional stuff um, is unhealthy. That's just my personal opinion. And I think too much cerebral interaction with God also uh, detaches you from the very thing that he's given you. And so I think a combination of the two um, is a really cool thing to have because it allows me to um, reflect and lament at times, reflect and lament, but then it allows me to fully weep when I see that God something for me that I did not ask him to do, or he's protected me from something that I did not see. And so, um, that's, that's really what confession is for me. And so when I know that there might've been an era, a, a place in my life where I erred, um, I'm able to spend time alone and I will reflect. And my confession could just be my thoughts towards God. And then there are other times my confession is my tears that flow. Then there are other times that confession is my verbal open confession to God. And then lastly, of course, um, I've been married to my beautiful wife where I've been for going on 17 years. That's crazy. Um, my confession is also to my spouse and just mm -hmm. confessing to her, you know, I, I can do better. I know that I can. And uh, if you can just hold my hand and hold my heart and we can just grow in this together. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. That's, that's an aspect of this that we haven't really talked a lot about is, but confession within a marriage relationship 
certainly has a role to play here that, um, yeah, you know, I remember hearing growing up, and I think I've talked about this in places before here, but I remember hearing people say, not people close to me or like my parents or anything, but I remember hearing people say, uh, you know, real love is, is never having to say you're sorry, you know, that type of thing. And <laughs> um, like, okay. it's no wonder some people struggled in marriage and, and things like that, if, if you kind of had yeah. that, that idea. So I, I, I like the, the thought of, of how that plays into the marriage relationship for sure. Yeah. Um, I don't want to get kind of going too far down a, down a tangent, but, but I want to kind of think a little more about this kind of bringing your full self, bringing your emotions to worship. Cause I do think that's wrapped up in, in this conversation. So I'm wondering sure. for you, who's kind of experienced kind of life in, in, in some different church worlds, if you were to talk to someone who was kind of struggling to bring their full emotional self to worship, what would you tell that person is kind of a place to begin or, or something to consider to kind of get started, take a step in that direction? Well, the first thing I would do, I would ask them, um, how do they feel when they um, begin to worship God? When, when they begin to worship Christ and the work that he's done on the cross, what emotions flood your mind? Mm. And when those emotions begin to flow, why do you stop them? Mm. And when you answer the reason as to why you stop it, then I would say then I would find an environment that is healthy for you to do that. Um, because I don't, th I'm not going to say I don't think that that'd be a reach, <laughs> but I would expect for us to be able to experience our emotions uh, when we do get to heaven. I would expect that. Um, I don't think it'll be an emotion free zone. In fact, um, the Bible articulates that knees will bow and tongues will confess uh, that Jesus is Lord. And I don't think that that will be a very rigid, very soft whisper. I think that that will be a very emotional experience when Christ returns. Mm, and so I definitely want to practice um, engaging my emotions so that it won't be weird when Jesus breaks through the, the clouds. <laughs> <laughs> I won't be afraid to cry in front of a bunch of men because I've already done it before. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. I like that. I like that. Um, well, thinking, thinking back kind of on your, on your church experience growing up again, and this could be related to, to the role of confession or how that plays out or, or really just kind of anything around the church experience. I'm curious if there are, um, do you think there are misconceptions or, or kind of um, misperceptions that people have about kind of predominantly black churches? And I know you can't kind of put all of them in one box, but, but maybe you can mm -hmm. just kind of think about your experience. Uh, do you think there are mis misconceptions that people have kind of about the, the predominantly black church experience and, and what would you do to kind of say, to, to maybe clarify some of those? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think they go both ways. Um, I'm going to have to tell you a story to kind of how God really prepared me for this in yeah. order to get to that. Um, so I went to two different high schools and um, the first high school I went to was an all black high school. I was in the band there. And um, I don't know if you know this, but at black schools, uh, the, to be in the marching band is to be one of the coolest kids on campus. Right, right. right. Um, and so I transferred after my sophomore year to a white school. And so when I got to that school, um, coach was coming to me and saying, man, we want you on the football team. I was like, no, nah, man, I'm in a band. <laughs> I had no idea that being in the band at the white school was not the coolest thing to do. Right. And so what I found myself doing, I made friends. And I mean, I stayed in the band at the white school. And I, found, I made very good friends there. But I still had friends that were in the band at the previous school that I went to. And so when I would hang out with both of those friends, my white friends would say, oh, man, that's a ghetto band. And then my black friends would say, oh, man, that's a white band. They don't know how to do anything, man. They're so lame. And so this is what I did. This is what I did, man. I talked to my black friends and I said, hey, man. Do you know how to read treble clef and bass clef? No, I don't know how to do that. Um, are you fully immersed in the complete family of percussion instruments? Because I'm a drummer. No, I'm not. I said, so guess what? Those guys can do that. And so just because they do music differently from the way you do it doesn't mean that they're not as good or they're not on the level. They can do something you can't do, so you have to respect them. And so I would tell my white friends, I said, hey, can you memorize all of your music? No, I can't. I said, how about this? Can you memorize your music, play it, and dance while you play it by memory? <laughs> oh, I could never do that. I said, well, guess what? Those guys can do that. So they can do something you can't do. 
So you have to respect the gift that God has given them. And so now here I am in ministry context, and I have my great friends that I have at the church I'm at now in Houston Northwest, and I have friends that are um, still pastors and leaders in the black church context. Mm -hmm. And what I have to do is help them to understand that God's hand is in both places. I've wept at the black church just as I've wept at the church I'm at now. I felt the spirit move in both places. And I would say that most people believe that the black church has a very liberal, very free theology. And um, I'm here to tell you that the reason why I function so well at Houston Northwest Southern Baptist Church is because um, I grew up going to Sunday school and we were in the book of Zephaniah, you know, just the, the obscure minor prophet books, you know, in Sunday school, just breaking down scripture and just really understanding things. And so that conservative belief of family, that conservative belief of Christ at the center of the household, that conservative belief of so many things that um, people have attached only exclusively to what is considered, I guess, evangelical church, um, that exists in the black church as well. Yeah. So I definitely say that, um, that it would be the, the values and the theology, uh, the, the core belief of who Christ is, the role Christ, Christ plays, yeah. That's good, that's good. That's probably a good place for us to, to leave our conversation today. I could keep asking you stuff and we could keep talking for a long yeah. time, but, but we'll, <laughs> we'll wrap it up there. So, so Ryan, I, I appreciate you joining us for this. I appreciate you lending your perspective and, and I appreciate what you're doing there in Houston. I'm, I know that can't have been an easy road, as you said, to be the first black pastor at that church, but, but I'm grateful for people uh, like you who, who are doing that and trying to break into some of these spaces so that we can learn from each other and, and diversify and, and, um, and, and become the more complete, as you said, technicolor picture of, of Christ that, that he calls us to be in the world. So. Thanks, man. Glad to be here. All right. Appreciate it. Thanks, Ryland. All right. Have a good one. Bye.